Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and this episode is Q&A number 117. Before we get into today's questions, big thanks to our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat. In particular, if you lose a large amount of sodium in your sweat, then you can get a stronger and more concentrated electrolyte supplement. And if you don't lose so much, then you can get something that matches that lesser amount of sodium lost in your sweat. But importantly, when you can do some sort of quantification of how much you sweat and how much sodium you lose in your sweat, then that's how you can really make sure that you nail your hydration strategy and in particular in longer and hotter races, this can be the, the crucial difference between uh, having a great race or your performance falling off the cliff. You can find your sweat sodium concentration level by going to the free hydration plan tab on precisionhydration.com, answering a few simple questions, 10 of them I believe, and that will give you an estimate for how much sodium you have in your sweat. And this has been validated against uh, real sweat tested data with medical grade equipment. So uh, this is actually a really, really good starting point to then continue narrowing down your perfect hydration strategy. You can get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code DEATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka create products that have exceptional quality and they contain a ton of innovations. Examples of their innovations include the patented arms up technology that they have in all of their wetsuits and tri suits the great lift and buoyancy of the Maverick MX and X2 wetsuits, the ultra lightweight adjustable titanium cores of their eyewear, their sunglasses and prescription glasses, the Geeko anti-slip technology and all of the advanced optics and coatings that are designed for performance even in extreme conditions of those eyewear products. That's just a short list of all of the things, all of the details and the technology that goes into any Roka product. But suffice it to say that uh, the focus there really is on, on optimal quality. And that is what you can expect when you get a Roka product. You can get 20% off your Roka order with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now on to today's Q&A. And as Two weeks ago, my guest today is once again Michael Rosenblatt, and we're continuing to answer questions that you sent in about interval training. So let's get right to it. All right, so I'm back with Michael Rosenblatt here for part two of our uh, interval training Q&A. Michael, welcome back. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me back again. No problem. It's uh, going to be fun to tackle some more listener questions. So let's start with this one from Henrik, which is uh, a really good one. How should aging athletes or masters athletes uh, go about starting out with uh, high-intensity interval training without getting injuries? That's definitely a great question. And uh, it's something that not only me personally, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm only 37 now, but I'm certainly getting injured more and more frequently and having to uh, try to bounce back. Uh, I think that there's two ways to look at interval uh, interval exercises. And one is the goal of uh, causing that physiological response so that we can improve and get better at our sport. But then there's another thing that we sh- that, that's very important to consider, 
uh, and that's the, the actual stress uh, that we're putting on the body. And so how much can we handle? So while I might say, for instance, you know, four or six minute intervals might be more beneficial than doing one minute intervals, I would certainly recommend somebody who's just starting out, start with one minute intervals. And sorry, actually, I should say, when I say it's more beneficial, it's more beneficial for improving endurance performance doing these longer intervals. But uh, uh, it, it still might be more beneficial to prevent injury by doing something like these one minute intervals uh, uh, and, and maybe even only four or six, six repetitions just to get the body used to the physical stress of, of, of doing the work, especially if you're running. Yeah. Good answer. Uh, let me see here, find another question. So this one is uh, a very common one. This one is from, uh, uh, Josephine in Germany who asks, what is the best way to combine interval training in the three disciplines of triathlon and how to distribute your interval workouts between swimming biking and running yeah that's certainly a great question and i can i can speak to that regarding the uh, the cycling and running when it comes to the swimming i always think of swimming as a whole other beast especially uh, being a swimmer myself i know that uh, it's not as black and white as we as some physiologists might think um, but uh, what i would generally recommend is uh, you would do, if, if you were only going to do two, uh, interval sessions per week, that maybe one would be, uh, cycling and one would be running. Uh, and, uh, and if you're going to do different types of intervals, uh, that I would alternate week to week based on, you know, what you would be doing for cycling and what you would be doing for running. Uh, there is some benefits of, uh, adding a third interval session, uh, uh, per week, depending on your fitness level. So if you can handle it and recover fast enough, definitely you should be doing interval training in the water. Um, but uh, I'm sure uh, you've also noticed that for some reason you'll recover a little bit quicker uh, doing stuff in the water than you would, uh, whether it be running or cycling, uh, probably because it's just not as much at least physical stress. There is obviously some nervous system fatigue and general fatigue from swimming, but uh uh, hard to say how, how we can modify those sessions for swimming, uh, but certainly for running, I, I'd say uh, split them up between the different modes. Yeah, uh, my experience is that it, it does vary. There are some athletes, and I'm raising my hand here, for whom actually recovering from a hard, really hard swimming intro session might be the hardest of all three of them. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not to say that it's not better to do more swimming intervals because certainly even if it feels like I'm more recovered, after uh, a hard run intro session than a swim intro session, uh, obviously the injury risk is something completely different. So, and and I do agree with uh, with that that you need to be be careful with the running, as we already discussed in the previous question, although it wasn't necessarily mm -hmm. specific to running. But uh, but yeah, I think I think it like the swimming can vary so much depending on if you have a swimming background or a propensity for swimming for some reason. Uh, yeah, some athletes can do a lot of work in the mm -hmm. water. But with some, you need to be a little bit more careful because otherwise just the general fatigue will uh, basically compromise the, the rest of the training. Uh, yeah, I definitely I definitely want to say I certainly was generalizing a little bit with re regards to uh, the programming around swimming because it, it does – I'm not taking anything away from swimming. It is a lot of work. Uh, I think the main difference is if, if we're comparing something like that with running where uh, – that there's a lot more eccentric load and the, that impact itself. And so more on the preventing of getting injured side of things is, is, uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and and you mentioned there, if you're adding a third intro workout per week, even if we're thinking about uh, like this time of year, uh, again, a lot of countries have pools completely closed. So a lot of mm-hmm. my athletes, for example, are only uh, running and biking now. So I have some athletes that are in the situation where they're doing three intro workouts per week. And then the selection between uh, where you do the, like if you alternate doing two to one bike versus two to one run, or if you just choose to go with one, for me, it's 90% of the time, it's two bike hard bike workouts and one hard run workout just because of the, the additional eccentric loading and injury risk of, of running. The only exception would be somebody who is who I know is really, really tolerable and also might have a bigger weakness on the run compared to the bike. That is the only situation where I would consider doing two runs and, and one bike in, mm-hmm. if, if we're choosing between those three intro workouts in those two disciplines. Mm-hmm. and uh, then another follow-up question from josephine is if you have a training block of let's say three to four weeks would you recommend to focus the interval training on one physiological goal in one or more disciplines or mix it all up so i think for example would you do all hit in all three disciplines or would you do all sit in all three disciplines or would you maybe do hit in cycling and sit in running and swimming if you see what what the question is getting at there. Mm-hmm. yeah and, and certainly it's a, a great question and uh, and hopefully this uh, this also helps uh, for any of those who are interested in uh, in participating in my study um, because it's it's only for cycling but you know, we, we would still like multi-sport athletes to to be involved uh, the fitness will translate. Uh, uh, so if, if you do cycling intervals, you will see improvements in your running fitness, uh, and vice versa. Um, that doesn't, you know, that's not to take anything away from you certainly still need to run to get better at running because of the specificity of the sport, but we, you you certainly will see improvements in, um, uh, in all your sports. And there's, there is literature to support that. Uh, but I mean, even anecdotally, I know that as I, I get better as a runner, my swim performance goes up uh, because I'm able to handle harder workloads. Yeah, uh, absolutely agreed. Mm-hmm. So, but then the takeaway there is that you you could I mean you could choose to do either way, right? That it uh, mm-hmm. it depends it depends a little bit. That, that's at least how I'm interpreting that and and how I've been uh, planning training. Yeah, that, and that, oh, sorry, go on. No, sorry. Uh, so I, I think, yeah, I, I think that was basically what I what I wanted to say there. That that you could, uh, yeah, you could go either way, and uh, may, maybe it depends a little bit on the on the strengths and weaknesses of the athlete and and what events they're training for. But uh, but generally speaking, I don't think that it makes that much of a difference when 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 talking about choosing between sit and hit at least. Yeah, I'd agree, and I'd, I'd say uh, definitely do. Uh... It, I, it can go to a bit of preference as, as a triathlon coach. I'd say, you know, I'd like to, to get my athletes doing uh, both uh, interval training and both cycling and running. But uh, like you said, it's, it, 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 it doesn't really matter too much uh, depending on the block that you're in. Yeah. Well, one, one example that I would give is, for example, I think sprint interval training, training on the run can be very useful for some athletes that just seem to have a bit of a slower leg speed and and aren't really good at like getting up to speed and running fast that sort of training can help not just with 
the physiological benefits that is what uh, the studies that you've done the meta regression on are probably getting at more so but actually even just biomechanical benefits for for some athletes uh, I, I think is a, a reason for that you maybe choose sit for running but then at the same time if triathlon is your goal the hit might be slightly more effective as we have talked about a little bit uh off air so mm-hmm. so so then you might choose hit for for the bike and and that would be one example but then another athlete might not have that situation with the run and needing to improve leg speed so then you could choose hit for both of them yeah and and i'd say that uh, sprint interval training would likely be as much as much as we see uh, physiological adaptations uh that will help improve oxidative metabolism uh i'd say um you will see a huge neuromuscular response. Uh, we'll see similar improvements uh, doing sprint interval training that's anywhere from five seconds up to 30 seconds. And so if we think about what's actually happening in a five-second bout, it's likely neuromuscular. And so if we see the same improvements between a five and a 30-second, that maybe it's it has a little bit more to do with that going from nothing to, to something, that, that, on, uh, that off to on, uh, that, that big load there. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a huge takeaway for for me from your work uh, with sprint interval training. Then the next question is, uh, again, coming back to recovery, we talked about that last episode, but this one is a bit different. Uh, It's from David who asks, when might you want active recovery versus passive recovery? Does it matter or not? And so I'm assuming that this would be during the actual interval session itself. Yes, during the actual interval session, yeah. So uh, uh, it's, this is a great question, and my answer has changed since I've analyzed the data from the meta-regression. And, and just to put things in context here, the meta-regression includes 77 individual groups with a total of 550 people. So we're looking at a lot of data here. Um, and originally, I would have said, well, for sprint interval training, you need to do passive recovery because we're, we care about replenishing our PCR stores to the best of our ability, get basically get back to being as fresh as you can. And then uh, uh, with high-intensity interval training, maybe it didn't matter as much. Uh, but the results from the meta-regression show that it probably doesn't matter regardless of, of the type of interval training. Whether you're doing active or passive, uh, uh, we'll still see similar improvements in time trial performance. Mm. Great. Mm-hmm. And uh, let me see here. I'm scrolling down my list of questions. So... Mm-hmm. Um, right. This one is from, uh, uh, Derek in Ireland. Sorry. That's probably not how you pronounce your name, but, but I'm not, not sure how to pronounce it. And, uh, the question is this year, I've done nothing but four hours of aerobic and one hour of high intensity sessions per week. Uh, my FTP has not changed all year from that. So do I need to be adding more than one high intensity session per week, or do I wait till the build phase to increase the number of high intensity sessions? Uh, so, uh, I'd say that, uh, I mean, that's a tough question as to why your FTP is not changing and that, and that can, you know, there, there can be many factors for that. But what I would suggest is, um, uh, to, to incorporate two interval sessions per week into your training in addition to a number of, uh, lower intensity sessions. So, you know, we'll say potentially a polarized training model. Uh, but certainly I, I would suggest, that you're doing, uh, that you incorporate high intensity interval training. And, and one thing to, to also elaborate on is depending on what that hour looks like, like if you're doing, uh, uh in, in intensity that's more, uh, at that, uh, heavy domain, which would be between your, your first and second threshold, 
you're, you're less likely to see the types of improvements that I think you're looking for. So it's possible uh, without knowing too much about the details of your programming that you might not be exercising at a high enough intensity when you're doing your high intensity work. And possibly you might be doing uh, your low intensity at too high of an intensity and might need to go a little bit lower. But that's generally what I've, what I've seen with athletes. Yeah. And I'll add a third point that at some point uh, you can only get so much with five hours. So this obviously depends on your fitness level. But uh, if you have been training at that volume for a while already and have improved your fitness, but now it has plateaued for this last year, maybe it is simply that you need to increase your training volume. If, if that is, you've basically gotten all you can get from that, that, that could be another potential issue. Yeah. Uh, then this one is from Norman Bannick who asks, what's the reasoning behind different interval progressions? For example, progressing intensity uh, compared to progressing the duration of intervals, compared to uh, progressing the number of reps and versus less rest? Mm-hmm. Good question. And I think we, well, we may have addressed that a little bit in, uh, in one of the other questions, but I think if we look at it both from the improving performance side of things and limiting injury, uh, as well. So while I might say, uh, you know, you don't have to do uh, passive recovery, you're, you're able to do active recovery, or you might not need as much time between bouts. If you're tired, and you need a little bit extra time to recover, uh, I would take that time. Uh, and uh, the same thing with with progressing the actual total work, or your intensity. If you're you haven't done intervals before, and this is something new, I would gradually, I would start with less and a little bit lower intensity and gradually build up. Now, uh, if, if you haven't actually exercised at all and you've only, or haven't done any high intensity efforts, uh, uh, and you've only, you've done these like kind of long, low intensity work, even though high intensity interval training should be in the severe domain, it's still okay to do some intervals in that heavy domain. Now, you might not see the same physiological benefits. But in terms of the the actual stress that you're putting on your body, just so that it learns how to adapt to handling heavier loads, um, is still very important. But once you once you do uh, have that ability to to handle the load, you do want to get into that that severe domain, and uh, you can gradually increase your reps and your and your the duration of those bouts. Um, yeah, yeah, and. Uh... The next one is from Sonde, who asks, uh, how do over-under intervals uh, work? And what are the pros and cons of them? So going from the severe to the heavy domain and back, uh, so crossing and crossing uh, around threshold. Yeah, so that's a great question. And so if we're going to say crossing that threshold, which uh, you know, there's a lot of synonyms for this or different, uh, different measures that we can use to determine these thresholds, but let's just say that that second one would be your critical power. Uh, uh, as soon as you go above your critical power, uh, you start uh, u- utilizing at least one of the things that you're doing is utilizing your creatine phosphate stores. And when you're above your critical power, you cannot replenish them. And so you'll just see that those creatine phosphate stores will decrease. And so by going under, uh, uh, you'll as soon as you go below your critical power, you'll, you'll start to replenish those, those stores. Now, depending on the intensity... Uh, how much lower you go and the duration that you're spent down there will determine how long or how much of that creatine phosphate you can replenish. And uh, it'll make it so that you can spend more time above 
critical power because it's a limited amount of time. Yeah, and and if we go a little bit uh, deeper on this, so so for an example workout, it might be three times ten minutes or three times twelve minutes where you're uh, crossing and crossing between a minute and a half at one hundred five percent FTP and a minute and a half at eighty to eighty five percent FTP. So something that is uh, pretty pretty reasonably steady and uh, like or moderately hard, like a tempo solid tempo effort, but but not not super close to threshold either. Then mm -hmm. Like what? What is the purported benefit of that versus, for example, doing just a pure three times twelve minutes at threshold, or just around, like maybe just under or at threshold? How how do they compare? Like basically, is is this type of training more high intensity or more uh, heavy domain kind of steady state, or is it a weird mix mm -hmm. of the two? So it's certainly a good question, and. I'd say uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to, to know, and I'd be cautious to have people train too close to those domains, or sorry, to the, the borders of those domains, because you don't really know, you know, if you're plus or minus 5% based on, you know, how you're feeling that day, uh, or the method in which you use to determine those thresholds, if you're actually in one domain versus the other. And so, uh, uh, you, you do want to make sure that you are when you're doing, you know, your high intensity interval training, that you are in that severe intensity domain because the physiological responses are certainly different. Uh, and so, uh, you know, going just at 105% of your, of your critical power, uh, if you know for sure that you're, you know, you're in, you're in that severe domain, that's one thing, but it, you know, I would suggest, and I think, uh, uh, Michael, you've also would suggest that maybe going a little bit higher, uh, would ensure that you're getting the, the benefits that you would that you would like. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree. Uh, it, it, but as you said, it depends on if you are very confident in in your uh, critical power. So, so I do prescribe these types of sessions with 105, percent but that's when I know that okay, that mm -hmm. is actually going to take the athlete for sure into the severe domain. So, so I guess like the way that I have looked at these types of intros is is about lactate clearance when you go below threshold and practicing that from the lactate that is produced so it's uh, maybe a very different stimulus and adaptation than high intensity interval training or at least that's the way i've been looking at them but of course you do end up spending some time in uh, the severe domain as well so maybe you do get a smaller dose of the the same benefits that you would get from a classic high intensity interval training session yeah and and certainly if you know if you have a coach who is programming uh, the the uh, your intensity domains accurately? Then you know there's less to worry about. So for sure, I mean, I, I have a feeling you've been doing this for quite some time. So you you probably do know when you're you know you're getting your athletes in the right domains, and 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 there's even these acute responses based on just even how participants or, or, or athletes are breathing to ensure that they're within the right domains. So yeah, yeah. Um, let me see here. There was one question that we kind of uh, talked about before, but not quite. And I just need to find it here. So we talked about in the previous episode, actually, what is the driver adaptation, whether it's time spent at VO2 max or whether it's like the actual work done and uh, how hard and how long and so on. In a similar vein, but slightly different is uh, are the actual adaptations uh peripheral or central and i'm still trying to find the, the mm -hmm. question here oh so yeah this is the question from sean who asks sometimes the limiting factor to hitting a certain wattage or speed late in intro feels muscular the legs become tired 
and sometimes it feels cardiovascular general exhaustion uh, so are there different methods for improvement depending on what your limiting factor is here as well is is part of the question well uh, it's it's interesting because I, I certainly would say that <laughs> Uh, the, the feeling that we have, like, you know, if we say it, it feels like it's cardiovascular, we might be breathing a little bit heavier. Uh, and then we can go a little deeper and say, well, are we breathing heavier because we're building up all these, uh, metabolites in our, in our muscles and we're a little bit more acidic and we're trying to, uh, you know, breathe out our, our CO2 because of what's happening at the local side of things. Uh, so it's hard to determine based on how we feel. Is it is it just because we're feeling it in one area or another where the the limitation is? But uh, uh, in terms of the adaptations, you know, is it uh, you know exercising at high levels of oxygen uh, versus is it the mechanical work that we're doing? Um, this is a very and and then you know you know is is are the adaptations that are happening peripheral versus central? I mean, this is very important stuff and, and there's certainly emerging evidence on this. And, and that's, you know, hopefully what my, uh, the study that I'm recruiting for is going to kind of help with a little bit. I mean, the, the intervals are all a little bit different, but all certainly beneficial. Uh, I don't want to dissuade anyone if they see one type of interval training versus another. They're all very good types of intervals. Um, but, uh, one thing to consider is, uh, if, if we're looking at high intensity interval training, um, you know, are we getting, you know, central versus peripheral adaptations? And we do see uh, uh, changes in cardiac morphology from doing high intensity interval training. And so if we see that, the question would be, does oxygen even matter? And, and so then we'd say, well, what's really, what are we really doing with the oxygen? Are we trying to get it high or is, is the high levels of oxygen just the response to the stress? So, is it really the secondary component to what we're looking at? Do we just want to be able to exercise for a long duration of time? And then potentially if oxygen's at a very high level, does that mean we're able to continue and maintain exercising for a long duration? Uh, it, it's hard to say. And, and there's certainly a lot of acute studies that look into, you know, spending time at high levels of oxygen and, and maximizing the time. But, it, you know, it's it's something that I hope to... to to, to figure out um, partially from this training study is, uh, you know, is, is it just the mechanical work that matters? So if you're doing intervals of different types and you're doing the same total load, uh, or does it matter how much oxygen? It's, I think the question's still out there. <laughs> There's no answer yet, at least yeah. as far as I'm aware. But that's really interesting what you say about the, the changes in cardiac morphology. And uh, I mean, potentially that, that could be one of the key adaptations, but also you could flip the question on its head a little bit and say that, well, let's let's assume here for a second that that's one of the main uh, adaptations that happen through high-intensity interval training. But what if that's not your limiter as an athlete? Maybe you're more limited by what's going on in the cells, by mitochondrial biogenesis and so on. And uh, and maybe, I don't know, may, maybe the high-intensity interval training for some reason doesn't work. Although we have a lot of science mm -hmm. about that as well, that it helps with mitochondrial biogenesis so but it could be some other things uh, going on there as well anyway uh, i'm also excited to see more stuff done in this realm because it's a topic that that is very fascinating and uh, and yeah i don't think that we have a a good answer at at this point but certainly worth following yeah and we we certainly know that central factors are the primary limitation to uh uh maintaining high levels of oxygen and there's a big study that came out in 2015 a big meta regression that that kind of confirms that 
but saying that, and, and it was interesting when I was chatting with Steven Seiler last week, uh, that, and, and it, that peripheral adaptations and central adaptations go hand in hand. We kind of need the whole body to work together. And while I might be saying that we do see huge changes in, in well, I say huge, but we do see changes in, in the central factors with HIT, there are also peripheral adaptations as well. So I don't want to take away the fact that, you know, you do interval training, you'll see these peripheral adaptations. Um, but uh, I'd say that it, it's kind of all important. We, we, we need to uh, improve the, the ability to deliver the oxygen and then also our ability to utilize it. Yeah, well, that, that's a good answer. Uh, it keeps it very simple. And uh, sometimes that's that, often that's the way that we should we should yeah. do things. We should keep things simple and not, not overcomplicate things. So so that's a good, uh, good note to end that question on. And speaking of which, we've basically reached, uh, answered most of the questions that I had I planned for us to, to answer. So, so that's really great. Uh, can you just give a little quick summary again of the study you're recruiting for and where listeners can go to find out more information and sign up if they're interested? Sure. So um, uh, doing a big study through the University of Toronto for uh, uh, some of my uh, PhD work. Uh, and uh, we're looking to recruit cyclists. Uh, uh, and this is an international study, so from all over the world. Uh, and uh, collaborating with uh, a lot of different sports scientists and, and, and different universities and clubs. Uh, and primarily, we're, we're looking to determine uh, the effects of different interval workout durations on time trial performance uh, in cyclists. And so this will be a six-week uh, interval training study. Wanted to get it up to six weeks because four weeks is, uh, we'll see changes for sure, but is there anything a little bit different after six weeks? Um, and uh, sorry, I think, uh, uh, I don't know if you can hear that in the background vacuum, there. Vac- vacuum cleaner there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, I think it's uh, just uh, nothing like doing work from home where the uh, 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 the the maintenance people in my condo building are uh, cleaning up a little bit here, so apologize for that. Uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, so basically we're looking for uh, cyclists uh, anywhere from active to elite uh, who've been training for at least six months. And when I say training, be, you know, consistently exercising as a cyclist a couple times a week for the last six months between the ages of 18 and 45 years of age. Uh, and uh, there'll be some testing at the beginning and some follow-up testing uh, to determine time trial performance and also an incremental test. And uh, uh, some information both about the study or further information uh, regarding the study and also to register can be found on my website at evidencebasedcoaching.ca. And uh, I think you'll be posting the link, but if uh, the exact way to get there is click on that research uh, tab at the top and it should be able to direct you right to where the, uh, the study information is. Yeah, I'll post a direct, direct link as well in the episode description. So thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time, uh, not just in uh, today, but in the episode that we did a couple of weeks ago as well. It's uh, been really good to, to have you here to answer questions about this topic. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. I hope that you enjoyed this second part of the interval training Q&A with Michael Rosenblatt. Uh, as we discussed towards the end, I want to remind you once again that Michael is recruiting uh, participants to a big interval training study he's conducting. So in the episode description in your podcast app for this particular episode, you'll find a link 
that goes to the the website or the web page for the study with more information and also where you can register for it if you are interested in doing so. It goes without saying, but hats off to anybody that uh, goes and does that, takes part in the study, because all of you who do that will be participating in in or contributing towards science in endurance sports uh, advancing. So that is a really, really good thing to do, and uh, we are all thankful for that. Tune in again on Monday to hear my interview with uh, Robert Gorgos, who is the team nutritionist of the Bora Hanskrohe World Tour Cycling Team. And we will discuss nutrition at the highest level of cycling, of course, but also we will discuss tips and takeaways for amateur athletes. Also, I want to mention that if you are interested in coaching services, training camps or training plans, then go and check out everything we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com and learn more there. We have something to fit everybody, whether you are a complete beginner, new to endurance sports, or you are uh, somebody looking for wins and podiums, or even looking to go professional, then obviously coaching would be the thing that we would recommend. But for any level, we have something that would fit you. Big thank you, finally, to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and get a free hydration plan and find out what your individual set sodium concentration is and get 15% off your order of electrolyte supplements with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.